So I saw this cartoon pinned to the notice board at Insight Meditation Society, which is a sister center to Spirit Rock. And it's a three-captioned cartoon. First caption says, The History of Man. The second caption is a man scratching his head with a bubble, thought bubble. What the hell is happening? Third caption, the end. (laughs) So maybe you're in the second caption. What the hell is happening? (laughs) What are we doing here? Why are we doing this? What's the point? Where is this going? Seems to be an awful lot of hard work and pain and suffering and challenge and struggle for many of you, if not all of you, from time to time. What is the point? Why are we doing this? I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But I'm going to speak to uh, some of the challenges that we encounter in this practice, in our lives, on retreat, and how to work with them. And I want to give this talk partly in response to some of the things I've been hearing, listening to you in groups and individual meetings, and wanting to speak to different ways to work with difficulty and pain. So, as I'm sure you've all experienced, the retreat life, meditation life, is no different than your ordinary life in that we experience pleasure, pain, joy, sorrow, ups, downs, expansion, contraction, the full range of experience. We like some more than others. We cling to some more than others. The Buddha spoke to uh, the radical truth of our experience in his teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And in the first uh, insight for him, the first elaboration of that truth was that there is suffering, that there is discomfort, there is anxiety, stress, dis-ease. There are things that are difficult to bear. It's one of the the translations of the word dukkha. Difficult to bear, hard to bear. And I'm sure many of you have been feeling things that are hard to bear. Anxiety, loneliness, fear, self-hatred, The good news with this practice, with the teachings, is it's not just set up to make you experience discomfort and pain and struggle, but to give you the tools and the the understandings to how to work with it, how to navigate it, how to transform it, how to come into a skillful relationship with what is inevitable. So one of the ways the Buddha defined dukkha as and there are many ways to define it, is not getting what you want. See if you relate to these four things. Not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you have, and being separated from that which you love. So the first one's kind of obvious, not getting what you want. Maybe the second one is too, getting what you don't want. Anybody ask for the particular body that you have? 
or the particular mind that you have? Did you go online to some mind catalog place? And yeah, I'll take, a, I'll take one of those really restless, anxious, catastrophizing, fear thinking, doom and gloom, pessimistic minds. That sounds really like fun. No, we just show up with the conditioning and the genetics and the family history that we have. That's the raw material that we have to work with. Some of the, some of the wiring is uh, pretty uh, deeply ingrained. Uh, the orientation of the mind towards fear, towards what is threatening, towards scarcity... towards survival, to catastrophe. Anybody noticing the catastrophizing mind? Where we sit there planning the most horrible things that could happen in our lives. We feel completely miserable. And then we do it all over again. As Mark Twain said, some of the worst things I'm in, in my life never actually happened. I spent a long time thinking about them. What about the distracted mind? Anybody suffering as a consequence of their mind. Just put a hand, raise your hands here, yeah, see if we're in the right planet. Yeah. Anybody have a distracted mind, a wandering mind, the challenge of the restless, seeking mind? So some studies that are coming out about the, the extent to which we wander and space out from our day, even, even during tasks, the data at the Harvard did a, uh, quite a large study, and the the uh, the data was that we space out an average of forty six point nine percent of the day. That's even while at work and in conversation. And to some of you, that might not, might not be much of a big surprise. You might have thought it was like eighty to ninety percent. <laughs> well, actually, other research studies are now saying it's more like sixty to seventy percent of the day that we're spacing out. That's like most of our life, if you include sleep. We're actually not present to that much of it. Fortunately, mindfulness is a counter, counteracts that tendency over time. Did anybody ask for the particular family and the cultural conditioning that you came into? And so much of the challenges in our lives and the, the suffering is things that are outside of our control. I worked for a long time with a student meditation student, and she recalls uh, from her early childhood she had a lot of very intense physical disabilities um, that were very challenging for her and the family, and she overheard her mother say, and it didn't overheard, she, her mother said to her, uh, you've ruined our life. You've ruined our life. And she was already dealing with crippling physical circumstances. And I hear from people, from stories who've grown up in very wealthy, privileged backgrounds, which may seem like a blessing from the outside, to be you know, mistreated and abused by the hired help that have been hired to take care of them. So we never know the circumstances we're going to be uh, brought into, and yet we deal in our practice and our lives with the consequences of those. It's part of what we're working with here. There's a powerful story um, by the athlete Billy Mills, who was the first Native American athlete to, uh, to win a medal at the Olympics, I think in the 60s, I believe. 
And uh, as uh, wonderful as that uh, victory was for him, it was also incredibly painful because there was still so much racism um, in the culture that he wasn't allowed. There was no public photos of him. I don't think he was allowed uh, on the on the um, the medal stage when he got back home. There's just a lot of racism when he returned to this country. And uh, he later wrote a piece that I find quite moving that speaks to about how um, we may ask or we may have an intention for certain things and then we get delivered what life serves us up and then we have to deal with that. He writes, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given the life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. So we never know what we're going to receive. And the practice, the instruction is always, how do I meet this? How do I open to this? How do I deal with this? How do I stay with an open heart and be with whatever experience comes our way? Thich Nhat Hanh once wrote, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So that's what we're doing here. This is a a set of techniques and tools and practices and philosophical understanding that are teaching us how to live well in a very simple, ordinary, pragmatic way. Not easy, but simple. And the choice is ours, how to put this into practice. So we have two primary uh, resources here, the practice of mindful awareness, the practice of loving kindness and compassion, that help us orient, that really are essential tools to orient towards our difficulty and struggle. There's a quote from Viktor Frankl that I think really speaks to the power that mindfulness brings in, um, when I think about suffering and the end of suffering, I don't think about so much as freedom from, although that may happen, but I think of freedom in relationship to. Because some of the difficult circumstances of our life might not go away, so we may not be able to ever be free from them. Like, who's going to be free from aging? Who's going to be free from inevitable sickness? Who's going to be free from inevitable death? But we can be free in relationship to them, not have a contentious relationship to them. So he writes, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and happiness. So you may see this both here in your lives, something arises, 
some fear, some threat, some hostility, some anxiety, some body pain. And with mindfulness, it, it, it almost feels like it creates a certain spaciousness in the mind, a little uh, window in which there's some, some moment in which to discern and to choose a wise response rather than just have a knee-jerk reaction of hatred or aversion or judgment. There's a m- moment where we can see, where we can feel, where we can receive that experience. And in that window, there's a possibility of not adding more fuel to the fire, not adding a second dart to the first dart. In psychology, it's called response flexibility. We have some time, some moment to choose a different way other than the reactive one. So I want to talk about three primary ways to be with difficulty. And I'm going to just, I'm not going to have time to go into them all deeply, but the first in Vipassana practice, the instruction when, we, when something arises that's difficult, plain, painful, unpleasant, or with any experience, but particularly if it's unpleasant or difficult, the instruction is to recognize, to acknowledge, to allow, to feel, to sense into, to explore. Right? As, we, as you've been doing over these days, something arises, and you bring full mindful presence to it. Breathe with it. Explore what is this? How does it, how does it change? It's a very powerful methodology, and it's the primary methodology we use here. I'm not going to say so much about it because it, the whole retreat is exploration of this orientation. It's somewhat counterintuitive in relationship to pain because the last thing we feel like doing when something painful comes up is explore it. When our knees hurting or back is aching, the last thing we really want to do is go, oh, great, back grinding, gnawing, rubbing, aching, stabbing. Oh, yeah, I really want to go into that. Mm, yummy. No, we want to get the hell away. But there's tremendous value, as you've seen and as you will see, in learning how to go deeply into that. This is a... Um, Example of that from uh, teacher Darlene Cohen. She writes, as uh, with working with physical pain, she writes, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow I dip down into that muck again and again and I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel a despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught, So at last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins. First peace and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist. 
I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it'd be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist it until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So that's a more intense example, but we all have those places where, we, where we're invited, we're asked to dive really deep into these dark, painful places. And of course, like she says, we go kicking and screaming every single time, even though we know from experience as we go through those, they're very transformative. They're healing, they're insightful, it's freeing. So, but this is only one way to work with our difficulty. And sometimes it's not the most useful. And that's really why I wanted to give this talk today, because sometimes work, say, for example, working with physical pain, working with chronic pain particularly, working with anxiety or certain other mental states, sometimes fear, self-hatred. Sometimes the very being with and allowing and opening into actually sort of takes us down a groove, a tunnel in which it's harder to get out. Or, it, or with the anxiety, for example, or fear, sometimes it can exacerbate it unnecessarily. Or with the physical chronic pain, it can be wearing and depleting and not the most balanced way to work with what we're going through. So another orientation, which is also an application of mindfulness, is what's known as resourcing which is really a way to bring balance. And so much of practice is about learning how to be with our experience with balance. So in this case, a physical pain, chronic pain, it would be to place the attention anywhere other than the vortex of the pain. And this is different than bypassing. This is different than distracting because it's done consciously. So the, 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 the instruction would be to shift to somewhere when you're feeling overwhelmed and struggling with the physical emotional pain, you can play with shifting the attention to something more neutral or something more pleasant that grounds you in the present moment. And you start with the body. It might be the breath. It might be the sit bones. It might be the feet. It might be some, often it's the lower part of the body that feels more grounded and safe. It might be uh, sounds. It may be uh, opening the eyes and somewhere in the visual field. It could be standing, it could be walking, it could be nature, it could be journaling, it could be talking to somebody like a teacher. So there's different ways that we resource and ground so we can hold our experience. And we do this naturally in our lives. We may go have a cup of tea or we may call a friend or we may have a hot bath. You know, there's different ways that we pull in other resources so we can deal with our experience. So we can learn to do that here. And I've had to do this on retreats uh, many times. I went through a very long, painful retreat when I was at Insight Meditation Society some years ago. It was a three-month retreat, and it was, I was in so much pain I couldn't really practice for about two months. I couldn't do the formal sitting and walking practice. A lot of trauma came up, a lot of early trauma. And so my practice looked very different. And so I did whatever I could to stay balanced, which for me at that time was a lot of hiking in the woods, um, being outside, uh, listening to music, 
uh, and other things. And I, would, I kept saying to one of the teachers I was, I was working with back then was Joseph Goldstein, and I kept saying, I just feel like such a terrible yogi. Everyone's in the Dharma hall, they're sitting, they're meditating, they're doing all the, all the they're getting up at five in the morning, and I'm sleeping in, taking baths, and hiking in the woods. It sounds like a spa. And he said, you've got to widen your understanding of what practice is. Practice is what helps you come to balance in the moment. So if hiking, if, if there's so much energy and trauma and discharge happening in the body that it's, 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 un, it's unwise to sit, then you do whatever works. So if it was listening to Mozart, that was listening to Mozart. I was okay with that. So, um, so I want, to, want us to do a little, pract- a little exercise here. So close your eyes, put your pens and paper down, and um, just call to mind something that's difficult for you. It might, you may even, it might just be right here. There may be physical pain for some of you. Chronic pain might already be just right on the doorstep. Might be some emotional pain that's already here. Or call something to mind in 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 recent days that has been difficult. Feel it. Sense it. Physically, emotionally, if you can. And then I want you to take your attention. We're going to shift to uh, a resource that, that, is, that is not that physical or emotional pain. It allows you to resource attention in the present moment. So start with the body. See if there's anywhere in the body that's not affected by that physical or emotional or mental suffering. Might be your feet, legs, buttocks, hands. Might be your breath. Just take a moment to feel into those. And then shift your attention to sounds, or silence, or both. So you bring in a wider field of resource. See what that does to the experience. And sometimes that isn't enough, so we open our eyes. So I instruct you to open your eyes. And you want to be orienting towards something that's neutral or pleasant. So I want you to look around the room uh, most usefully to look outside to nature. Nature's a resource for most people. And find something pleasing. Find something that's uplifting. Maybe color, shape, form, light. And notice what happens in your body as you really take in this beautiful thing. Usually it relaxes the nervous system the activation from the pain, the triggered stuff, calms down. We feel a little more in the moment. We usually feel a little more in our bodies, a little more resourced. So from this place, I want you to take your attention back to what that which was difficult, physical and mental, emotional pain, if it's, if it's accessible. Sometimes we do the resourcing and it dissolves. But just for the, for the 
play of this, I want you to bring it up if you can. And then shift your attention back and forth between what was resourcing for you, which might be feet or legs or sounds or breath or the trees or the light. Shift the attention back and forwards. So we're not ignoring the pain, we're just learning to have a certain freedom in relationship to it. So we can choose to be with it. We can also choose to be with that which isn't the pain. So several people were talking to me about feeling unsafe here for various reasons. And my instruction to them was feel that, feel the lack of safety, but also feel into what is safe here? Where do you find safety? Because sometimes we, we look through an experience and, and, it, and it appears monolithic. Maybe we feel anxious. Well, what, in, what here isn't anxious? Maybe we feel depressed. Well, what here isn't depressed? Maybe we're lonely. Well, what here isn't lonely? So to look outside, it's from a bigger lens. So play with that. Play with this idea of resourcing. So again, it's, the discernment is mostly it's fine to be with our experience, to explore it as it is. When it feels like that orientation is not useful, either because the physical pain is wearing, because the emotional pain is too much, we feel overwhelmed, we lose present time awareness, then you shift to something more neutral that's easy to be with that allows you to feel more grounded. The last important way of being with uh, pain and difficulty and the first noble truth is really the path of the heart. And we'll be talking more about this when we're talking about this in the evenings. And really, for, from my experience, the, 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 the maturity of our practice <clears throat> comes when the practice of mindfulness and love or kindness or compassion come together. That the the, there's a certain fullness in our mindful pra- mindfulness practice when the heart is engaged. When the heart's not engaged, the practice can tend to be a little cool and can tend towards a little indifference. When the heart's engaged, it's fuller, it's softer, it's juicier, it's more embracing, it's kinder, it's a much more fun place to be, it's more full. The Sixth Zen Patriarch said, Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. So we need both. They're both very interfused. Awareness, mindfulness is the basis for kindness, and and as has been researched, the basis for empathy and the basis for compassion. And out of that awareness comes the expression of kindness and love. So when we're going through when you're going through a difficult experience, perhaps in the next 10 minutes, uh, maybe listening to this talk is painful, I don't know. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) The first thing to do is to acknowledge it, like we do with mindfulness. Oh, this is suffering. This is painful. That definition of dukkha, this is hard to bear. This is hard for me to hold my anxiety. I've been through a very anxious summer this year, came quite out of the blue, partly trauma-related, partly just life circumstances, and I hadn't had to deal with anxiety this extent for a long, long time. 
And it was really hot. Anxiety is really hot. I find it one of the hardest things to be with because the very nature of it wants you to bounce out of it and away from it. And it was months of, oh, this is hard. This is painful. This is difficult to be with. And I had to do a lot of resourcing, a lot of grounding to, to hold the anxious body, the anxious little one inside. So when we acknowledge the pain, oh, this is difficult, this is suffering, it allows the heart to, to become engaged. It allows us to feel, oh, this is, to feel some sense of care, a sense of friendliness. Just like we would if, some, if a friend calls and says, oh, I'm having a really hard time, my partner's on my case, and I'm worried about money. And, you know, we naturally, when the heart's open, we just respond with, oh, how can I help? We, we respond with warmth, with kindness. So the meta practice is asking us, can we be a friend to ourselves? Can we befriend ourselves? Can we be warm with ourselves? Can we be forgiving? Can we be kind? And I've heard from many people who've been saying that they, you know, as, as Leela spoke to the other day about the second dot, just adding the second dot, that's so, so much extra suffering, you know. It's bad enough having a crazy mind and then we judge ourselves for a crazy mind. It's bad enough for having a painful body and then we judge ourselves for having a painful body as if we were choosing it. During that period when I was at Insight Meditation Society, what, what saved me in that time, it was a really challenging time, was the practice of metta that came through. All the years I'd been practicing metta, it felt like I was, you know, I was really kind of flattened by the pain of the experience, but what I could draw on, or what was left, was a residue of a kind awareness or compassionate awareness. I wasn't trying to be kind. I wasn't trying to be compassionate. That was completely not available. But that's what was left was was a, an ability to hold my experience with care. And so, because of that, I wasn't resisting the pain, and because I wasn't resisting, it wasn't it wasn't actually. It wasn't suffering. It was painful, but I wasn't suffering. And it was a huge lesson for me. To, and and that's, that's why I talk about the, the necessity for fusing the mindfulness with kindness, because when, when, when we engage the heart, when, when love is present, everything is, there's a, certain, there's a softness and it's more tolerable. It's not pleasant. We wouldn't choose it. But there's a certain sense, ability to sort of yield into it, to surrender into it. Do you know what I'm saying? Is this familiar? Some of you are nodding, some of you are like, yeah, no. <laughs> That's okay. We all have our different 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 doorways. And then we come when when we can uh, orient towards our difficulty with some presence, then we have a different relationship to it and we can, we, there's more transformation that's possible. So as Rumi said, the wound is the place where the light comes in. The wound is the place where the light comes in. And I'd say that's true if, there is a, if there's a capacity to hold it. If we're fighting, kicking it away, the light's not gonna get in very easily. 
or as Kahila Gibran says, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Your pain is the breaking of the shell. The shell cracks open and understanding uh, is possible. Or as Leonard Cohen puts it, he said a couple of beautiful things. There's a crack in everything, that's where the light gets in, similar to the Rumi line. You might know that song. I'm not going to say what song it is because I don't want that going around in your heads. Um, but he also, uh, in this, my favorite lines of Leonard Cohen, he says, when he's talking about Jesus, when he knew for certain that only drowning man could see him, he said, all men shall be sailors then until the sea shall free them. Only drowning men, so on the time when only drowning men could see him, when, when, when only drowning men could see the light of Christ consciousness, you could say. All men shall be sailors until the sea shall free them. So those that are drowning in the sea of suffering, it's the very suffering and the transformation in the suffering that will save them. And that's, it's, it's a really a, a take from a line from the Gnostic Gospels where Jesus said, what you, if you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. If you don't bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. So we, we go into our pain as a, as a vehicle for transformation, as a vehicle to transform the heart. So I'm going to close with one story. Um, the, 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 other, another, the other doorway to working with difficulty is through the doorway of is, um, having a sense of humor. Because if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny, as Wavy Gravy said. So um, this is a story um, that I got from Spring. And uh, it's, uh, it's a way of dealing with worldly suffering that you'll relate to, I'm sure, especially the parents in the room. A man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in a basket. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies, and her mother tells her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. And when told she shouldn't have any, couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more hours to go and we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The, the mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be going through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and we can take a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, What do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) So sometimes we need to be that patient, you know. So whatever your name is, there, there, Mark. There, there, Monica. Only two more meditations to go, and then you can go to bed. (laughs) Okay, so thank you for your attention. So let's sit together. If you need to stand, please stand. Just stretch a little. If you don't, we'll just sit.
kindness to the body. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.